Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the very first episode of my newest podcast. I am Steve R. So if you're here for college football stuff or Mississippi State stuff or the top 10 list, this is, uh, this is the wrong show for you. I'm going to speak in depth about recovery. I'm going to talk about my own journey. And um, listen, I don't know what this show is going to be. We're just going to let it evolve over time. But I, I, once I announced this on Facebook a few days ago, I've been overwhelmed with the, your support. And I want to thank you for that. And there have been so many people that have reached out privately and said, hey, Steve, I'd love for you to do this because uh, I don't think there's enough stuff out there about recovery and uh, especially from, you know, from people that have lived in it. And, um, you know, I don't have any notes with me today. I'm just going to kind of shoot from the heart and uh, and from the hip, I guess you could say. It's just me and a bottle of Propel here. I don't have any sponsors lined up. And I've been contacted by a couple of people and eventually we'll probably do some of the, some of that. But uh, I just wanted to speak down um, today in language that uh, I think people can absorb uh, rather easily. I don't know how long we'll go today. I've got some other things I've got to do, but I wanted to get this one done. I've been putting it off all morning. Uh, I was thinking about doing it yesterday, and I've been so exhausted the last couple of days. I felt like I needed a good night's sleep before we did this. And so I wanted to talk a little bit today kind of about the reality of when you kind of realize that you, know, that you are an alcoholic or a drug addict, because it took me a little while to kind of get to that point. And before I get into all of that, I'm going to ask you to listen without prejudice. I'm going to ask you to say, okay, listen, I'm going to try to find some commonality in the words that are spoken rather than the differences. That's one of the things that I really struggled with. You know, when I went and sat down in an AA meeting for the very first time, I kind of took everybody's inventory. I looked around the room and I said, I'm not like these people. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a drug addict. But the the, the truth of the matter is I, I had known for a long time that I had some real problems. And uh, when when the alcoholism label 
was kind of dropped in my lap. It was almost a relief because in many ways I thought I might be crazy. And I mean that with as much sincerity and, uh, and love as I can uh, for my former self, but for you that are out there, they're still suffering. I mean, I, I went through so many things that were just absolutely insane. And we'll get to some of that a little bit later, you know, as this show evolves a little bit. But um, I wanted to share with you that, uh, you know, you're not alone. You know, if you're struggling with that, if you're struggling with the acceptance of the fact that, okay, I am an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict or I'm both or I'm a sex addict or I'm a food addict or whatever, if you're dealing with any level of addiction, no matter your drug or instrument of choice, the principles remain. And so if you're a person that struggles with those things and, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, addiction is really the disease of self. It's really about, okay, what makes me feel better about being me? And so for many years, I kind of sought that validation and that instant gratification through substance abuse. Uh, I did. I'm very honest about that. I'm forthright about it because I think, you know, one of the old adages of recovery that mean the most to me, that have always kind of resonated in my heart, is the phrase that we are only as sick as our secrets. And uh, I shared that with people regularly because when I was out in the depths of addiction, my secrets were many. My secrets were dark. My secrets were embarrassing. My secrets were shameful. So I try not to keep them these days. I try to work a program of honesty, but I want to go back. I want to go back to those days before I even really knew what the recovery community was about. And so, you know, when I first started doing alcohol and drugs, it was really for extra fun. I thought, you know what, what if what could make tonight better? It was always about the experience. It was always about having fun. It was always about kind of a rebellion against authority and against you know, the, the traditional lifestyle, and I used to joke that I used to live like a vampire because I was up all night, I slept most of the day, uh, ended up getting a job at a radio station, uh, working the breakfast shift, the morning show, and so it was great for me. Many times, I was just coming in from a night out, and then I would just kind of sleep a couple hours and then go in and do my shift and then uh, go back home and then sleep the rest of the day because that worked for me. And uh, the truth of the matter is not a whole lot worked for me, but I was able to kind of manipulate segments of my life to allow me to live the lifestyle that I wanted to. And uh, I was raised in the church and, uh, you know, my great grandfather was a minister. My grandfather was a minister. My brother married a missionary's daughter. Uh, My mom and her sisters got up and sang every Sunday in church. And so it was never one of those situations where I was not exposed uh, to, you know, a spiritual lifestyle. And so If I'm being honest with you guys, you know, after a while, I begin to kind of think, okay, I'm living this life of abstinence. I'm living this life where everything that looks fun is bad. And so I was told, hey, it's kind of like the, you know, the the tree of of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. It's like, well, hey, you can eat from every tree in the garden except for this one. Well, that's the only one that I wanted to eat from. That's the only one where the fruit looked good and and, uh, had the sweet smell. And so the spirit of temptation was one of those things that was always kind of prevalent. But it's so much more than that. It is so much deeper than that. It is easy to sit here and say, well, you know, everything would be great if I just didn't drink or use. 
But there's a reason that I was kind of attracted to that in the first place. And that's because things were wrong with me. There was something wrong with me. And in my case, there were many things wrong with me. Some of them were not of my own making. You know, I didn't choose uh, you know, to, to be born into the family that I was born into. Now, as I have matured and become a man and everything else, I appreciate the fact that I was born in the family that I was. But in many respects, you know, I went through all this and I, I just kind of for a while, I thought, you know, well, hey, we'll, we'll go to church, we'll play church league basketball, be involved in the youth. But it didn't really move me. You know, it's almost like I was doing those things out of a sense of obligation rather than, you know, a sense of worship per se. And so I shared the belief, but I don't know that I fully appreciated, you know, how deep that that, you know, that that relationship had to be in order to be successful. And so uh, as I, you know, became a teen, began to drive and things like that, I mean, you know, I wanted to do the things that I saw other people did that looked to be having more fun than me. And so I get out there and I say, okay, well, listen, what makes tonight better? What makes the weekend more exciting? Oh, let's drink a little. And so, you know, and a lot of it, you know, I can even talk about, you know, when I was smoking. So it was like if 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 you were smoking Marlboro Lights, I was going to smoke Marlboro because I wanted to be, you know, I guess darker than you, you know. <laughs> and, and it's one of those things I learned later in life that, you know, I've got this predilection to chemical dependency, but also I've got an over overly competitive streak that uh, is kind of a dangerous combination because, if you were smoking Marlboro Lights, I wanted to smoke Marlboro Full Flavored. And then if you were doing that, then I wanted to smoke marijuana. And then if you were smoking marijuana, I wanted to smoke marijuana and drop acid or drop ecstasy or, or uh, you know, take pain pills. And so, and if there was a high out there that you had had that I had not experienced, then I wanted that too. I wanted to have the most colorful drug resume possible. Because I just, I, I was always looking for the bigger, better thing. I was always looking for the better high. I was always looking for the better time. Because there was some things in my life that were just wrong. I was bored with my actual life. I thought nobody understood me. And that nobody could even attempt to understand me. Because like all these other people are like, hey, well, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. Well, I was doing those things. And so then all of a sudden, the shame and guilt comes along with that. And that's a big part of the disease of addiction is that shame and guilt kind of hold you in place. And it kind of ostracizes you from the people you love because, you know, again, it goes back to as being as sick as your secrets. Well, I was holding some pretty deep secrets from people that love me. And so I felt like they would judge me for the decisions that I made. And the truth of the matter is they did. They did. And they would. And a lot of it's because of the decisions that I make because of the life that I wanted to lead. You know, that appealed to me. I wanted to get out there and I wanted to try drugs. I wanted to try alcohol. And uh, I heard a guy say in a meeting one time, and I'm careful not to break third tradition here, but, uh, you know, is that alcohol and drugs took me farther than I ever wanted to go and made me stay longer than I ever wanted to stay. And that's true in my life. And so I began to have consequences. I began to have consequences for the life that I wanted to lead. You know, it's like, it's not just about compliance. It's not about being a sellout or anything, but it was like, you know, I was not a productive member of society. I was a functioning drug addict, but at the same time, I was not really contributing. I was basically just finding a way to, to fund my habit. And so as these things began to unfold, I began to have some consequences because the deeper you get into addiction, the, you begin to find out that nothing is beneath you. Nothing is beneath you. At least it was for me. 
you know, I began to find out that I had a lot of character defects. And I, I found out that I wasn't the person that I thought I was. And a lot of it's because, you know, I, I began to kind of move away from, you know, the things that I was taught as a young person. It's like, okay, well, you know, you do this, you do that, then you get this. Well, I wanted more than that. I wanted to have a more colorful life. And so when I got into drugs and alcohol, there were some experiences that I probably would have never had. And, and, uh, and I'll be honest with you, some of those I count as gain. Even in hindsight, I count those as gain. But I didn't stop doing drugs. I didn't stop drinking alcohol because they didn't make me feel better. That's not why I stopped. I stopped because the consequences associated with living that lifestyle became too, too much of a burden to carry. Because here's what happened for me. I lost everything. Absolutely everything. I lost friends. I lost jobs. I lost relationships. I lost possessions. I lost family relationships. Lost my freedom. Lost my ability to say no. I lost control of my life. Other than the breath in my lungs that was a true gift from God, I had nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the truth of the matter is, if I'm being frank and honest with you, I was content to die that way. Because, you know, pride and ego get involved and everything else. And you begin to think, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to go back and live the way that they live. But I couldn't continue to live the way that I was living. So I had a choice to make. I didn't make it. You know, there are a lot of people out there that say, you know, they, they, had, they saw some bright light and had some spiritual awakening and, you know, they, you know, they saw the light. Well, I was one of those addicts and alcoholics that had to kind of feel the heat. And so it wasn't too long into this, you know, the depths of addiction that uh, I began to become a criminal. You know, I, I began to, you know, and, and again, we go back to the whole part of that there's nothing beneath me. I mean, chances are if I was in your house in 1991, I went through your medicine cabinet. It's the truth of the matter. I'm just being honest with you about it now. There are some amends that I'll never be able to make. You know, I stole things from people. Uh, eventually, I began to break into um, to convenience stores out in the country, in Lamar County and Marion County, out in the middle of nowhere. Because, yeah, you know, number one, it was exciting. You know, I'd like to sit here and tell you that I was destitute or whatever. I just needed to find something to eat. But it, it's not true. It's not true at all. It was the easier, softer way. I mean, I was working every day. Uh, I was partying all the time. Uh, I was partying with my friends and I was partying without my friends. And that was one of the things when we ended up all going to court and everything, people were like, Steve, I never knew. It's because I kept it from them because I was such a paranoid drug addict. If I had it and I gave you some that I wouldn't have it anymore. And so I began to break into these places. And uh, a lot of times we'd steal food or we'd steal things that we could sell. Or some, occasionally we'd find some money, but more, more times than not, you know, it was just kind of the thrill of the event. And so, you know, we didn't have to buy beer for a while. We didn't have to buy smokes for a while. We had groceries and that sort of stuff, too, because, you know, it's those little convenience stores out in the country that sell groceries and everything else. And so uh, we did it. And uh, I'm ashamed of it. But at the same time, too, I don't, you know, I've made my amends. I've moved on from that. I, I, I paid my debt to society. Uh, so I'm not going to serve a life sentence for that. But. In hindsight, when I look back, I think, you know, look, look at how far down the spiral I went that I didn't care. And that's what happens with addiction is it removes your ability to care about your own life. 
and to care about your own soul and to care about your own family and to care about all the things that you hold true because it takes them from you one by one by one by one. And the sad part of that is, is you don't care that they're gone. You begin to kind of realize, you know what, that's okay. I didn't need it anyway. That's okay. If they wanted to leave, I don't need them anyway. Oh, to hell with them. Who are they to leave me? I've still got this. And and uh, it's so... When I got arrested, uh, that was a pretty sobering reality. Because I knew I couldn't talk my way out of that. I tried to. I tried to manipulate everybody and you know thought, hey, we'll do this. We'll lie about this. And, and uh, at the end of the day, I was uh, the day that I was arrested, I was living on... Uh, right off of Wethersby Road in Hattiesburg. Had a condo over there with uh, some other guys that were co-conspirators in our own demise. But I think it's important, too, that, uh, that I'm honest with you guys about some things when it comes to that. There are a lot of parents and uh, loved ones that say, well, you know, he just got mixed up with the wrong crowd. Well, I was the wrong crowd. Nobody in my circle of friends was more influential than me. If anything, I corrupted them. Now, I'm not going to take all the freight on that because many of them showed up with issues of their own. Many of them were alcoholics and drug addicts and thrill seekers and all that sort of stuff too. And so you know, they're responsible for their own actions. But I say that to say nobody twisted my arm to do anything that I didn't want to do. Nobody made me do anything. I own my responsibilities. I own my mistakes. I did that. But there was none of this thing that, oh, well, somebody just victimized me and took me. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm part of some, you know, thrill kill cult or whatever. That wasn't the case. I went willingly. I was not a victim. I was a volunteer in my own demise. And so eventually, you know, we get arrested. And I was living off Watersby Road on my way to work. Matter of fact, we were going to leave that day and actually go buy some drums. I was trying to play music back then, you know, uh, you know, just, I guess it wasn't good enough, but, uh, we were actually going to go buy some drums that day down in Baton Rouge once I got off work. And as uh, a guy that was a drummer in the band pulled out of the, you know, pulled out of the, the parking lot, there's, uh, three or four Lamar County Sheriff's deputies there. Next thing you know, I'm on, uh, I'm on the ground with a gun to the back of my head. You know, and I don't, I don't hold anything against those guys I mean, they're just doing a job. But at the end of the day, somebody that was involved in the story. And again, I'll, I'll tell this. I'm, I'm planning to do that in about a month, give you guys a lot more detail about all that. But uh, there I was face down on the street with the gun in the back of my head because one of the guys that was involved with us kind of peripherally had gotten in trouble and uh, turned us in to save himself. And so I was really mad about that for a long time. Uh, even after I got sober, I was still mad. You know, it's the whole betrayal, you know, because there's, there's, there's supposed to be honor among thieves, right? But uh, here this guy was looking to save his own skin. Turns out he was a minor and I wasn't. So, you know, those young guys, you know, they got to go, you know, go pay a fine, get on probation. Uh, my situation was much different. I was charged with uh, multiple felony counts, among other things. It was one of those things, too. I think they try to scare you when you go in there, you know, you know before you get legal representation. I mean, life's changed a lot since 1991. But, uh, you know, they were talking about they knew this about me and knew that. And some of the things they were talking about, they were right about. But I didn't admit to anything. But uh, at one point they said, hey, we've got enough evidence to charge you with 21 different crimes. And the truth of the matter is, if they had known 
all the things that I've been involved with that have been a drop in the bucket. And I don't say that I have hardiness or arrogance, but I just want you to understand that a lot of people look at me today and they think they know who I am, but that's who I was. It's not who I am today, but it's who I was. And I earned that rightly. I earned that rightly. No, nobody made me do that. I did that to myself. So you end up going to jail and uh, you know, get arrested. And then uh, you know, my grandmother, and uh, you know, God love her, God rest her soul, she was uh, one of the most strongest people in my life. And uh, so she was going to bail me out and pay my bond, and uh, which was not an easy thing for them to do. We are not a wealthy family. Uh, I grew up as broke as the Ten Commandments, I say. My grandfather was a, a pastor and a carpenter, so there wasn't a lot of money to go around. I lived with my grandparents so I was eight years old. And so there just there wasn't a lot to go around. And so, but it was one of those things too where it's one of those moments in life you look back and you never forget certain things. And she had gone to the judge, Judge Michael Eubanks was the presiding judge over my case. And she had a contract that I had to sign, and he essentially made those conditions of my release. And the very first thing on her contract, and it was like eight or nine things. I don't remember what all they were. But the, the one thing that stands out to me nearly 30 years later is that I will get treatment for my alcoholism. And when I saw that, it was a part of me, I was like, it was a relief. It's like they all knew. I thought I was fooling everybody. I thought I thought I was getting away with it. But they knew. They knew that something wasn't right with me. And so when I saw that, it was a relief. I thought, you know, well, now I don't have to tell anybody. Now I don't have to be honest about this. Now I don't have to hide this either because they already know. And so, so I agree. I signed the contract. And uh, at that point, I would have done anything. I would have. I would have run home you know, no car needed. I was so happy to be free, but I was still facing some very serious consequences. I had, uh, you know, four counts of commercial burglary hanging over my head. And then uh, my grandmother insisted that I go to rehab. I didn't want to go. I really just wanted to, I even thought about running to Mexico, to be honest with you. You know, it's like, uh, you know, the naivety of youth. I thought, you know, it's fine. I can live off tacos and burritos forever. They'll never come looking for me south of the border, you know. You know how you think you want to make a permanent decision over a temporary situation. But my grandmother wanted me to go to Pine Grove. And so they didn't know the depths of my addiction. She was thinking that an outpatient plan would probably be best for me. And so when I go to meet with the intake assessment counselor, who was beautiful, I hit on her the whole time. Now, now here I am. I mean, talk about, you know, how my, you know, my grandiosity knows no bounds. I'm six days out of the county lockup, you know, facing felony charges, and I'm trying to hit on this lady, you know, and I'm, I'm happy to say that years later I was able to make amends to her. Of course, she didn't, she didn't take it nearly as personally as I did. But uh, after visiting with me, she informed my grandmother that uh, I needed in-person rehabilitation. I needed it. Because, you know, again, when if I was only willing to go so far, it's like as long as is the family wasn't, you know, as long as they were not saying, oh, well, he's this and he's that. Is If I didn't have to be rigorously honest with them, I was only going to go as far as they were going to go. And so when she's like, hey, I think he needs outpatient treatment, I'm thinking, yeah, you're right. I, and that's, I don't need to be in there. I just need outpatient treatment. 
But once uh, I got there, and it's funny how life works, you know, I, I had been drinking and using every single day, every single day. I, I didn't always just get, you know, torn down drunk or whatever, but it was a daily part of my life. And so after being in, in lockup for a few days, I, I was beginning to have some, some pretty severe withdrawal symptoms. And uh, my mom brought me in and uh, they had a bed for me. And I, was, and I remember thinking, you know, how sick I was. And uh, you have these withdrawals and there's fever and there's all this stuff that goes along with that. And uh, I remember sitting there and they're checking me in. You're filling out paperwork and everything. My mom is there and I started praying. I was like, God, please don't let my mother see me fall out on the floor because that's how bad it was. I, I, I thought at that point I was just going to pass out at any moment. And it's crazy. Maybe it's the relief of the moment or maybe there was just something changing in me. But all of it, maybe it's the guilt and shame, maybe it's the reality of an uncertain future, maybe it's the fact that I knew at that point that uh, anybody that had ever done business with me in the drug and alcohol community now probably saw me as an arc. But for the first time in a long time, I felt totally alone, totally alone. And uh, so God answered my prayer. I did not have to go, my mom did not have to see me fall out on the floor. And, but I went to my room, they gave me, uh, you know, the drugs, they give you the detox drugs. I think it was, uh, I think it was transine and some Valium or whatever. But, uh, but anyway, they gave me a handful of drugs, and uh, I want, I just wanted to go to my room. I didn't want to meet anybody. I didn't want to smoke a cigarette. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to go to group. I didn't want. I just wanted to go lay down. And so I go lay down, and uh, I kept ringing the button. I kept ringing the button. You know, the nurses aid, but the nurse call button. I said, "Man, I'm just so cold. Can you bring me a blanket?" And I kept ringing it, and I kept ringing it. And uh, the CA at the time, I won't mention his name because I don't want to break any anonymity, but, but he loved me enough as a stranger to bring me four blankets. As long as I asked for one, he kept bringing me one. And eventually those drugs took over, and then I went out. And, um, and I don't know how long I was out, but I slept forever and ever and ever and ever. And then I woke up, and I went back to sleep, and then I woke up, and I don't I think it was the next day, and I had an IV drip in my arm. And I thought, well, this is new. You know, I wonder what this is about. And I went back out. And then I woke up the next day, and there's this guy holding my hand and praying, saying, God, please don't let him die. Please don't let him die. And so I went back out. And then the next day, I woke up, and... Um, and I felt better. And so I pulled my IV out of my own arm and I went, you know, went down to the unit and I began to, I needed a cigarette more than anything else. And uh, people were like, oh, well, there he is. We're hoping you get up and get moving. And I remember thinking then it was nice to have the comfort of strangers. Nobody knew me. Nobody knew my story. Nobody knew what I was facing. And I kind of felt like the worst guy in the room. I thought there's no way these people, there's no way these people could accept me. But they did. And over time, they became my friends. And sadly, over the years, many of them died and went back out into addiction. But on that day, I felt like I had found a new family. I felt for the first time in a long time that somebody understood me. That didn't have to be, you know, opaque. I could be transparent with what was going on in my life. And from that day, when I felt like that I had found some friends, and of course they put you in that cafeteria line and feed you all the food you want, I felt like I had, I had eaten Thanksgiving dinner 
you know, when I checked into rehab, I was 146 pounds, 6'2", 146 pounds. And I had dreads by accident then. They were beginning to form back then because I hadn't washed my hair in a while. I was a mess. It's an absolute mess. But I went to the AA meeting for the first time, and I remember looking around that room thinking, I'm going to do what they tell me to do just so I can get out of here. And they told me I needed to go pick up a desire chip. And the truth of the matter is I did not have the desire to stop drinking and using at that point. I did not. But I picked the chip up anyway. And I cried the whole way back to my seat because I felt that I had caved in the peer pressure. And something changed in me. I said, you know, maybe you should listen. Maybe, maybe just listen a little bit. Just a little. And I wasn't ready to listen in AA meetings. I wasn't ready to speak. I really wasn't even ready to kind of be in that room. But I did it. But as I began to get to these small groups and things like that, and I began to hear these people talk, and I thought, you know what? Here these people were that I thought I was better than. You know, they're actually a lot like me. And rather than make me feel worse, it's like, oh, well, the realization comes to me that I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. I actually felt better. I felt better because now I knew what was wrong with me. And here these people were that had a plan and a program that could help me deal with that. And so I began to take advantage of it. And I still wasn't ready. I was still so naive. I thought, well, what if I just memorize the steps? Maybe they'll let me leave. If, I'm, if I show them how smart I am, they'll just let me leave. It's all, well, he's got it. We'll turn him loose. Because I here's the thing. I have been able to kind of outsmart my way and kind of sham my way through everything in my life except for recovery. It's true. I've always been smart enough to be better than somebody else so I wasn't at the bottom rung. You know what I'm saying? I was never as good as I could be, but I was always better because I could outsmart some people. But when I got into AA and I got into recovery, it's the one thing that I couldn't BS my way through. I had to actually do the work. You know, when I was in high school, I didn't bring a book home. Still made A's and B's for the most part. You know, when I was in college, I didn't study a whole lot too, except when it was time for an exam and you cram the night before you take a bunch of coffee. And, you know, I didn't want anything to get in the way of partying. But I was, I never learned it. I just memorized it to make it through the test. But when I got into the program, that's when I realized in, in order to save my life, I've got to do what they tell me to do. And some people say, well, you know, it's this, and this doesn't work for me. Listen, here's the deal. Bill W. says in the big book, rarely have we seen a person fail. And I've heard some people say, never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And so they basically dared me to get sober. I had a sponsor, Robert P., God rest his soul. He told me in group one day, he goes, you know, Steve, here's the deal. If you're not going to embrace this program, we're going to ask you to leave. He said, there are hundreds of other people dying to have that bed that you're in your laying in each day. He said, so if you're not going to embrace this, we're going to ask you to go. And it was family week, which is the worst week in the world. They said, you know, your mom is here. Your mom is here. And uh, we're, uh, we're giving her the tools to begin to cope with your loss. And said, you know, it's going to be difficult on her, but she's going to make it. She's going to have a system of people around her. You know, but, but you're a hopeless case. And I wasn't ready to hear that. And so it pissed me off, to be honest with you. And so when I got out of treatment, I picked him to be my sponsor so he could watch me stay sober at least a year. I stayed sober the first year out of spite for him. But somewhere along the way, I figured it out. I figured out, you know what? I'll do what they tell me to do, and I'll prove to them that it doesn't work. And now 29 years later, nearly 29 years later, it's still working. 
And so I wanted to do this brief introduction today because I know there are many people out there that are listening to this and say, you know what, I don't think I'm an alcoholic and an addict. But let me, let me venture this, this question for you here. If you're asking yourself that question, chances that are you are. Normal people don't think that way. Normal people, earth people as we call them, don't ask themselves, hey, am I an alcoholic or a drug addict? If you're asking yourself the question, your suspicions are likely correct. And I'll share with you this before I go. Even if I wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict, the 12 steps is a pretty cool way to live. It's a pretty cool way to live. I mean, just to think you got a bunch of people that sit around a bunch of, you know, folding tables with bad coffee and talk about the problems. You know, who wouldn't want to be able to do that? You know, that once a day you can go out there and visit with somebody and say, you know what, man, I had a rough day today. I kind of got resentful over this, or I got jealous over this, or I got spiteful over this, or I got depressed over this. And somebody would say, you know what, man, I've been there. You'll make it. Keep coming back. Keep coming back. And you know, to be honest with you, AA is like the only place they've ever told me to keep coming back. And that's a joke, but it's the reality of it. And so I shared this with you to make sure that you understand this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think can't be forgiven, you are not alone. You are absolutely not alone. I've been there. And there are some days today that the disease will get to talking to me and I'll feel all alone. Then I remind myself that I, that I have all of you. And that I have all of these this social media following and that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, that's all peripheral stuff. You know, those are acquaintanceships. But there are people that truly love me for who I am through all, all of my trials and tribulations and, uh, you know, court dates and AA meetings and everything else. Despite all of my warts and despite all of my efforts to push them away from me, there are people that genuinely love me. And there are people that genuinely love you. No matter what you tell yourself, no matter what the disease tells you, no matter what your dope smoking friends say, no matter what your drinking buddies say, there are people that genuinely love you. We as addicts and alcoholics tend to focus on the negative. But when you take some time to really reflect, there are people around you right now that are praying for you and they are begging for your recovery. Absolutely begging for you. And it's one of those things too, I had convinced myself that all the people that really loved me were so far removed from me that I, I couldn't touch them when I reached out. And the truth of the matter is they weren't even at arm's length. As soon as I began to take the step, as soon as I began to reach out to grab somebody else's hand, I had several more grabbing mine. You will have a similar experience. I promise you that. The people that love you are just waiting for you to say, you know what? I want a better life. And I'm here as living proof to promise you, you can have a better life. The promises of AA and the promises of recovery will come true in your life. But it is not as simple as simply stopping drinking and stopping using. Yes, it's a big part of it. But there is a program that you have to work through to kind of find the root cause of all the issues. And we're going to address that here in the weeks to come. Uh, I don't know if this will be a weekly show, but it'll be up you know, two to three times a month, maybe, maybe weekly. Uh, but this is very hard for me in some respects because, you know, I don't worry about being judged. What worries me at times is kind of digging, picking at old scabs. You know what I'm saying? Because even though I'm, I'm you know, almost 29 years into this, I am still recovering and I'm still getting over who I was. And so I'm happy today. I have a great life. Uh, I think this is the coolest version of me that has ever existed. 
And so I offer you, you know, my baggage and I'll just lay it out there for you and say, listen, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I am unashamed because I have paid my debts and I have made something positive of my life. And you can do that too. I am not unique. I am not special. I am a garden variety drunk and drug addict that simply did what other people told me to do. People that had been there. It's one of those things, you know, when, when your parents or your spouse or whoever, you know, when they're telling you to do what you, you think, it, you think it's self-serving. But when somebody that has nothing to gain from your recovery tells you, hey, listen, this is what I did and this is what worked for me. And so I share with you today, the first step in every bit of this is the sober and reality that, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. That's, that's who I am. Once you embrace that, once you acknowledge that you have a problem, then you can begin to address the problem. And there are people that are willing to help you. That's going to do it for today. I'll be back soon. No matter where you are, who you are, you're not alone because I'm here with you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.